in space with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today we will learn about swarms of robots exploring space, in particular lava tubes on the moon. These subsurface cave-like environments could be suitable for human habitation one day, but before that can happen they will need to be mapped. Using remote swarms of robots to explore these harsh communication limited environments is the objective of Giovanni Beltrame, and his research group at Polytechnic Montreal in Canada. Our interviewer Lily found out more about this unique application of multi-robot systems. Hi, welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Giovanni Beltrame and I am professor at the, at the Polytechnic Montreal in the Computer and Software Engineering Department and I work on multi-robot systems and intelligent systems in general. And have you been working on multi-robot systems for your entire career? Did you sort of, could you tell us a little bit how you got into this field? Well, actually, it's it's a long story. I have been working on uh, multi-robot systems only for the past six years. Before I, well, let's start from the beginning. I, during my PhD in, Poly, in Milano, you had to do two theses, one major thesis and one minor thesis. The major thesis is what, actually happens to be your PhD thesis. While the minor is something else that you should do on something different. My major thesis was on embedded system design, but my minor thesis was on robotics and in particular, robot football. And I was, I started looking into the planning algorithm for multi-robot systems. And that was the extent of my interest in robotics. It ended there. After my PhD, I started working for the European Space Agency I was working on radiation tolerance, design of embedded systems, really um, more electronic stuff. And uh, then uh, after my stint at the European Space Agency, I started working uh, as a professor and I still worked on embedded system design, thermal modeling of embedded systems until um, at a party on Christmas, I met uh, some person that it was actually, it was my wife introduced me to this guy who was a, a, the husband of her friend that uh, was working in a robotics company. And uh, uh, we started talking and it sort of rekindled my love for robotics. And I was like, hey, this is really cool if I could work on robotics. So that was uh, uh, when I shifted my career and I went in back, let's say back into robotics and that was in uh, uh, 2014. And uh, then I started uh, applying for grants in robotics. I got some and then it snowballed. And now I'm mostly working on multi-robot systems. That's awesome. And it all started at a party. <laughs> yeah. And so when you were working um, at the European Space Agency, did you anticipate eventually making the shift back into academia as a professor full-time? Uh, actually, I was not sure. The my experience was that uh, during my PhD, I worked in industry as well, and uh, um, I uh, spent some time at ST Microelectronics, 
And uh, after that, I thought I would uh, just go to industry. And uh, I got this position at the European Space Agency at the beginning as a research fellow and, uh, and then uh, as a full-time engineer. And uh, I, when I was working there, I thought, uh, uh, this is fun. This is nice. I like this job. I can see all this kind of crazy technology that end up going to space. I can work on these uh, things. But uh, I always missed doing some research. And uh, I, as a technical officer, which what I was at the European Space Agency, I could only devote about uh, 10 to 20% of my time to research. And uh, at some point I thought, I think I should go back to doing full-time research. And that's where I started to apply for uh, academic positions. Could you talk a little bit about um, your research lab now and specifically within multi-robot systems, what are you most interested in? So uh, I try to put together my uh, two passions, which is space and uh, uh, multi-robot systems at this point. And uh, uh, you have to imagine that uh, what we want to do is go to another planet and uh, have a, a swarm of robots perform exploration. So the object, this is the long-term objective. And we are getting there. I mean, we already have... Uh, um, JPL has a helicopter flying on Mars. So uh, everything that's related to this objective is something we're working on. So we have uh, uh, a series of research lines um, that involve uh, localization and SLAM. So you have uh, localization and mapping for multi-robot systems, navigation, coordination, and a little bit of software engineering as well. So all these activities uh, fit together in this plan to have the, a big demonstration at some point where we have uh, all the robots uh, doing the job of exploration controlled um, by an operator, which is supposedly an astronaut. We already did some experiments in this area. We, had, we went to uh, Lanzarote, which is uh, um, an island, in a, an island uh, next, in the, uh, next to the coast of Africa. And it's a volcanic island that looks a lot like the moon. So we went there with the European Space Agency and we had uh, astronaut uh, Matthias Maurer control our robots to perform uh, an exploration of uh, a planetary analog surface. So in, this, in that case, we had flying robots, which is not very realistic, for example, for the moon. But uh, um, the, the idea is that we studied the coordination, the networking, the uh, writing of the software for these robots and uh, also the human-robot interfaces. So all these things fit together into these experiments, and that's what we're trying to do at the moment. So I'm interested in, in this idea of having it be um, astronaut-operated. Do you think that that is like the most realistic path forward for multi-robot exploration? So um, the idea is that uh, if you have uh, a bunch of robots, they can be fully autonomous, as we say. But a fully autonomous system is pointless if it doesn't talk back to the humans. Because if we send the robot to Mars and never sends a picture back, well, good for the robot, but not for us. So um, there will always be an operator, even if it's just monitoring. If you're looking at space exploration, it's the highest likelihood, I would say, is for a system operated by trained professional. This could be an astronaut, could be uh, somebody on the ground station, this is not uh, particularly important, but there will be highly trained professional that is operating this swarm of robots. In our experiments, 
we looked at uh, um, interfaces that could allow the operator to do other things as well as monitoring the robots. Uh, we do this by looking at the cognitive load. So we're looking at uh, how much uh, difficult it is to control a swarm. You can imagine that now astronauts teleoperate robots, so they tell them what to do. The more autonomy you give, the uh, less cognitive load you give to the operator. And that's where we, we want to get to a point where the operator is uh, an astronaut, is uh, performing a mission, talking on the radio with teammates, uh, uh, doing other maintenance tasks on the uh, whatever spacecraft uh, uh, the astronaut might be, and uh, um, also monitors the, the exploration of the planetary environment. So I'd imagine that um, minimizing cognitive load for the astronaut would often mean that the swarm is, is I guess, more complex, but sort of more collective. Is that true? Well, the idea is that uh, you want, uh, we don't have uh, all the answers now. We are partnering with uh, uh, the Department of Psychology at Concordia University to look into the details of these things. But uh, workload measuring is very difficult for starters. And uh, we know that uh, the, uh, the uh, more autonomy you give to a system, the less cognitive load you give to the operator because the operator has to do fewer tasks to control the system. So yes, it in, in the, um, increasing the complexity of the software, of the managing of the swarm by giving it more autonomy can reduce the cognitive load. It, interestingly, we notice in some experiments, uh, again, no definitive answer there yet, that uh, if you have the swarm operate as a single entity instead of a, a collection of multiple robots can reduce the cognitive load of the operator because then the operator has to only give instructions to one entity, which is the swarm, instead of controlling several uh, separate robots. Got it. For the, um, for the robots exploring the volcano analog, could you talk a little bit more about their capabilities? Um, like what sensors did they have on board? What were you interested in measuring? That sort of thing. So, okay, uh, our objective is uh, for next year to go in on the same island and explore a lava tube. Lava tube is an environment which is underground and uh, it, uh, it's not too um, difficult in the sense that usually they are fairly large, they are fairly large, they're fairly long, and they have boulders and other structures, but uh, they are manageable, let's say. And... Uh, um, we want to do this with uh, robots that uh, uh, can go on the moon, for example. And uh, the moon has these lava tubes that are great for having astronauts, for example, set up a base because they shield from radiation, they can be sealed, etc. So the robots we want to send have to be able to map the environment because it's, it reduces the risk for the humans if you have a nice detailed map of the environment. You see if it's suitable, for example, for uh, setting up a colony. And also it provides very interesting information about the planet formation, the geology of the planet or, or, the, uh, or the moon. And uh, to do this, we have designed, um, together with, some, with our collaborators, a, a spherical robot, which contains a LiDAR and a 3D camera. Uh, the LiDAR is uh, uh, what you would expect, is, uh, I know, what you see also in self-driving cars. We have, uh, uh, we get uh, a laser, we get the, po the return points, and we can make a point cloud of the environment. The 3D camera instead is used uh, 
to uh, provide, uh, let's say, a more uh, easy to appreciate information for the operator. Because an operator can, if you, if you make a depth image, it's actually easier to parse sometimes than, uh, than a point cloud. And it's also helpful for, uh, um, for our navigation. And these spherical robots uh, as a sort of pendulum system and inside and have a, have a jumping system. So the idea is that uh, on the moon, they would be able to, uh, to go and uh, jump around due to the reduced gravity. And uh, the spherical robot is also transparent. So the LiDAR is inside and uh, the camera is inside and uh, the, the shell protects uh, the robot from the regolith, which is fairly abrasive on the moon. Um, this robot, we're still in the prototype phase. We are testing our software on uh, regular um, rovers. So we have a bunch of rovers. We have uh, Robodog. Uh, we have uh, uh, flying robots. But the, the idea is that our software is, uh, let's say, platform agnostic. Except for the control of the specific uh, mechanical part of the robot, the coordination, the navigation, the mapping, it's all... Uh, um, based on, uh, it, it could work on any robot, let's say. And uh, in the end, uh, we're going to do in uh, sort of, in several phases for testing, in three weeks from now, we'll be at the Mars Yard, which is a sort of analog terrain for the Canadian Space Agency, testing the rovers. And the first prototype of the spherical robots just to see how it, uh, deal, uh, it deals with the terrain, which is supposedly resembling Mars. And uh, uh, then we'll go in uh, the lava tubes to perform the exploration with a full fleet of these robots. So these spherical robots, they're, um, they're all like internally actuated. That's how they do this jumping mechanism. Is that true? And then also, um, how do you control which way they end up falling and facing? Or is your 3D LiDAR able to scan like all the way around the entire clear sphere? So the, there's a, the, the robot basically can rotate inside as a sort of pendulum system. So you can, there's a platform with the LiDAR on top and this platform can move left and right and uh, change inclination so it can rotate. And so you can move the sphere. And uh, the jumping mechanism is uh, um, a spring-loaded system with a sort of there's a hole in the at the base of the sphere, and by rotating the sphere, we can get to a point where it can jump. Um, uh, interestingly enough, we can orient the robot while it's flying because we have momentum control devices inside. So the idea is that we can. Uh, 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 it's like navigating a satellite in orbit. You have, mm -hmm. you spin a wheel in one direction, the satellite rotates in the opposite. So we can use this momentum control devices to orient so that we land in the right orientation. How big are these jumps we're talking? Like how much distance do you think it could travel in one hop? Is this feasibly, could it jump over boulders, for instance? The idea is that on the moon, we'll definitely be able to jump over boulders. The, the moon has one-sixth of the gravity of uh, the Earth. Um, again, this is still in prototyping phase, so um, um, we, we were still discussing about <laughs> the, uh, how, how strong the springs is going to be. And, uh, but uh, the idea is to have something that can jump uh, several meters high. Cool. So for this lava tube exploration, 
Um, are you imagining that the human operator would be sort of on site or like in the lava tube, above the lava tube? And if not, um, how challenging is communicating the data that the robots are collecting back to the operator? That's an excellent question. We expect the operator to be outside, possibly far away. Um, our robots uh, generate uh, a form a sort of ad hoc network. So they create their own uh, uh, communication network. And uh, we have developed some algorithms that uh, uh, allow the robots to form relay chains of information to, um, to the operator. So this is actually a fairly rich problem statement that we had to deal with because we have to deal with path planning. We have to deal with communication maintenance and also fault tolerance, because we want to uh, be able to um, maintain communication even if there's excessive interference, we, if uh, uh, a robot fails uh, or something similar. So um, we had developed this technique we called Swarm Re Relays. It was published uh, uh, last year at uh, Robotics Automation Letters, um, where the we can define a path, we can plan a path based on what part of the map we have currently defined, and uh, the robots follow this path and place themselves in such a way to have an arbitrary number of communication links that get maintained with the operator. Um, clearly, the uh, uh, bandwidth is limited. So we have this multi-hop networks, which is good, but uh, uh, we have to reduce and compress the data as much as we can. So uh, in our experiments uh, that we're going to do this summer, we're using the delays and bandwidth available uh, from a communication from Earth to the moon. So we're going for the, let's say, uh, a sort of worst case scenario for the moon, which is you sit on Earth. So we have about uh, uh, 1.5 megabits per second at uh, tops, and we have a delay of about a couple seconds. And uh, um, to do this, uh, we present the operator with only the minimal amount of information. So when the robot generate the map, we transmit a sort of compressed mesh that can be shown to the operator. And as more information comes in, we refine and improve the map. But the idea is that the, the operator can see in real time what's going on, although at, at the beginning with very limited detail. And this couple second delay um, obviously goes both ways. So does that mean that the astronaut is trying to predict what command should be sent a few seconds from now, or are the robots making a lot of the decisions themselves? Uh, robots are, I would say, fully autonomous. So the astronaut uh, or the operators, the idea is that they monitor what's happening. And for example, they can provide additional commands. For example, imagine that uh, the operator is seeing a map and uh, notices that uh, there's an area that is not clear or looks uh, um, interesting from a scientific point of view. Then uh, the operator can put a hotspot and say, okay, robots, please go and explore this area. But the robots will have the, you know, their own safety mechanism, and they will try to get to this area without uh, possibly uh, damaging themselves or getting stuck. So the, this this uh, sort of trade-off where the operator can provide commands, and we can have to the point of waypoints or specific commands rebooting a specific robot, but uh, in general, 
we expect the operator to be more monitoring and providing sort of suggestions to the swarm. Got it. Yeah, and you mentioned um, that you can maintain an arbitrary number of communication links. For what sort of scale are you talking here? As in, how many robots do you typically consider? And is like, you may not have an exact answer for this, but does two communication links at all times seem reasonable? Or are you talking about like five? How densely connected is the network? So it all depends on the number of robots. When we design the algorithm, we try to be as scalable as possible. Uh, the mission we pitched to the Canadian Space Agency and the European Space Agency uses six robots plus a rover. So there's a rover that's carrying the six spherical robots, dumps them into the cave, and then the robots perform their, uh, their exploration. Uh, the distance between the robots... Uh, uh, depends on the communication link that you choose. We have tried several types of antennas. Um, in a cave, uh, it's unlikely to be able to go more than uh, a few hundred meters. Uh, but on the on the surface, for example, we can go kilom with kilometers between robots and still have a, a reasonable communication link. But uh, even if you have a few hundred meters, you can perform a nice exploration of... Uh, uh, with six robots, you can imagine 600 meters... It's pretty mm -hmm. good for the exploration of a cave and providing a full map. Um, in this case, uh, you won't have a lot of redundancy between the links. We also have uh, uh, defined uh, algorithms that when the communication link is broken because a robot fails, the robots try to reestablish the link so they come back to, towards each other to try to reestablishing the link. But uh, we, in our simulations, we did experiments with hundreds, even thousands of robots in case uh, for ex more extreme cases where you have, for example, these uh, uh, tiny, tiny robots that fit in the palm of your hand that you basically throw around that can possibly jump a bit and, uh, and then they have to stop. So if you look at the realistic mission, I would say we would have uh, six, uh, six to ten robots. Cool. So this is this is really fascinating, and it sounds like you've worked on a lot of um, a lot of the technical challenges involved. Are there any that you still feel are uh, open for future research and and just like fully unsolved? What do you think are the biggest challenges you're? Seeing? Oh, I would say there are lots of unsolved challenges. We're working a lot on a lot of different things, but uh, um, so the the coordination, even just the if you look at the software engineering perspective, how to write the application in such a way that you can verify, certify, uh, it's really complicated. With a complicated with a single robot, it's massively complicated with a multi-robot system. Um, we developed our own programming language uh, to, the, to define the swarm behaviors. And uh, it's called Buzz. And uh, it's uh, a sort of scripting language that we use to provide the coordination. And then we integrate this with all the rest of the software. If you look at the uh, energy sufficiency, really interesting is what you, you want to have the robots deploy and perform a mission and yet come back to a charging station without any sort of assistance from the operator and taking into account any difficulties you might encounter. You want to have distributed fault detection. If you have uh, uh, an environment that has, for example, high radiation in a, in a certain area, and uh, this becomes a sort of dangerous area that you want to avoid. And you want to be able to uh, communicate this information to a robot and have a sort of map of the hazard, hazard zones of, uh, um, of the environment. And uh, so all these things are 
active research and uh, there's uh, there are some solutions but there's no yet definitive answer uh collaborative slum is another area of intense research so the robots make maps how do we fuse them how do we uh perform uh, uh the optimization of the uh of their uh, without going to technical details they, they the robots have uh, to know their position and uh, the sensors drift we need to solve optimization problems so that uh, the robots have an accurate map and they know their relative their relative positions in order to place themselves so all these it's uh, an area i would say of intense research and uh, there are lots of little steps going the right direction but there's plenty plenty of work to do in fact i think I, w- I will have work for the rest of my, my life for sure, just working on these problems. And when you talk about verification, is that like formal verification of the algorithms or, or what do you mean exactly? So when you go to space, uh, um, normally when you send a robot into an environment, uh, you can't go get it and fix it. So you need to have a way to really prove or at least statistically prove that they provide with a certain level of confidence that you will not have an unexpected behavior. Even with all the formal proofs, we still have uh, problems uh, uh, like uh, when we send uh, probes to space, there are lots of failures. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, yet what we want to do is to have something that blends in uh, all the new newfangled machine learning systems and uh, provides a certain degree of confidence on the result. And if you can get to a point where you have a, a really certifiable level of confidence, then you can, uh, 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 say, convince the space agencies that it's really time to send these things through. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you mentioned learning as one approach, and I can imagine that um, verification, like this idea that, that it, it can't do something unexpected, probably makes these sort of data-driven approaches challenging. Um, have you found that to be true? Yes, it is very challenging. There's uh, quite some work from colleagues around the world now trying to uh, solve this issue. Uh, there's uh, people from Caltech uh, that uh, are really pushing the control barrier function uh, approach, uh, which is uh, you sort of uh, have a, um, additional control uh, a system that uh, steers your robot away from danger and uh, other unsafe states. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some uh, other approaches that look at uh, the uh, sort of confidence level on the estimations of uh, a learned system. I think th- there's a lot of work to do there, and uh, it is pretty challenging. There are lots of research projects starting now in, in this direction, how to make uh, this uh, machine learning-based system more certifiable. There's also the uh, approach based on... Uh, uh, Reinforcement learning. So whenever you have reinforcement learning, uh, uh, again, how can you be sure that this works? How can you make sure that the, the robot still learns while being deployed without destroying itself? These are uh, all good questions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, it sounds like this is a very, um, a very exciting application, and um, you're doing a lot of great work. And unfortunately, I think that's pretty much all the time we have, but I was just wondering if you have any like closing remarks, advice to young roboticists, etc. Uh, go to parties. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my, my real suggestion is like, 
if you uh, if you want to jump into uh, multi robot systems, I think it's a good time to do it now. It's uh, uh, the the field is exploding now. Uh, don't delay. Get into it. It's uh, really fascinating, and there's a lot of good research to be done. And I foresee also a lot of really interesting commercial applications. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for today. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more to discover at robohub.org forward slash podcast, including information about how you can become a patron. Robohub is run by a team of volunteers from around the globe, and we do rely on small donations from listeners like yourself to help keep us going. So check out how you can get involved at robohub.org forward slash podcast. We will see you again with a brand new episode in about two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. Swarms in Space with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.